Church, if you have a Bible, we encourage you to turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. And if you want to put your finger there, I'm actually going to begin reading in Acts chapter 7, which might feel a little sideways, but the beginning will be me reading Acts chapter 7. As our 8 to 10s um, go to age-appropriate teaching, uh, I just want to thank God. I thank God for this team that has led us in worship through song. Uh, I am thankful for uh, David Mobley, who uh, is was supposed to be deployed at this point, who uh, got delayed, uh, and so he was able to be here today and help us lead in uh, worship through song today. Thankful to God for your presence, brother, and love uh, love that you're here uh, with your church family. We also are uh, want to be in prayer for several women who are away at our women's retreat, and I want to pray for them and for. You men, don't forget, next week, uh, or no, not next week, November the 5th, we will have a men's breakfast, so make sure that you sign up for that. Just send an email, info at tccrally.org, sign up and let us know that you're coming so we have enough food. I would love to, friends, um, read a passage of scripture and then pray. What I'm reading here in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 2, is Stephen's summary of the passages that we will be looking at today in Genesis 37 through 50. Stephen is about to be killed, and what he wants to do is to show his attackers, those who are against him, he wants to show them Jesus. And by so doing, he goes to the first five books of the Bible. He goes to the Pentateuch, and then beyond, but he goes there to show them Jesus. And so as a summary of the story of Joseph that we will get to look at today as we continue in our 15-week series covering the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we find ourselves in the Joseph story, and I read these words, Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and following. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. That is the promised land, Jerusalem. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his seed or offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners, that is, immigrants due to some type of exile. They would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Now, what he does right now is he quotes Genesis 15. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said our God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. That place being what we know as Mount Sinai. Acts 7, 8 and following continues. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs, the sons of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God with him, God was with him, 10 brothers, and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom from Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent to our fathers on their first visit. And then... 
On a second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now let me read the end of our passage today as we look at Genesis 37 through 50. Look, listen to these words, Genesis 50, 18. His brothers also came and fell before him. This is before Joseph and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would wash us with your word in this moment. I pray for those who are experiencing discouragement and pain, suffering and trial. You tell us that our pain in this life is a light and momentary affliction that is storing for us a reward, a weight of glory that far surpasses anything on this earth. And so, Father, we ask to see Jesus in this text today. We acknowledge your presence. We ask that you would come in power and that you would change us on the spot. We need you. We trust you. We trust that you are with us in the face of suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Trusting God in the face of suffering. This is the story of Joseph. As we get to look at his life today in Genesis 37 through 50. Remember Jesus on the road to Damascus. He spent just a little bit of time talking to these individuals who were with him, and he shared just the highlights of basically the whole Old Testament and said, every bit of that is pointing to me. That's the point of our series in the Pentateuch, is to take these different highlights of these first five books of the, uh, of the Bible and to say, these words point to Jesus. So Joseph's story has two main points as it sits in the scriptures. Point one is it shows us how God fulfilled his word that the people who resided in the promised land were going to be exiled, so to speak, down in Egypt and find themselves there for 400 years. This was the prophecy that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15. But also in those same words, he promised that they would be delivered from Egypt from the hands of those who enslaved them and those who enslaved them would be punished. The Joseph story shows how they went from Canaan to Egypt and therefore in subsequent weeks, how God delivered them out of Egypt. Second point that Joseph's story tells us. It shows us a pattern a pattern that's found throughout the Old Testament that points to Jesus as the Messiah. Specifically, Jesus as the suffering servant who stood in our place. What you will see is it's out of the pit of suffering that God brought out Joseph. And it's a pattern that out of the pit of despair, God brings out new life. New life through Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ where forgiveness is found for those who surrender. 
This is the story of Joseph. So three main ideas today as we dive in. Number one, the continuing devastation of sin. Number two, new life from the ashes of exile. And number three, forgiveness through our suffering servant substitute. All of these things found in God's precious word. And let me reiterate, the goal here is not simply learning facts. Our God is here, present in this moment, and he wants your heart. The point of this passage is no matter what you face, our God can be trusted. He is with you, and he loves you. So let's see this come alive in the text today. The first point that we see is the continuing devastation of sin. And I want us to be afraid of sin. And in love with Jesus. I think that's the point of this first point. I get a lot of my help from the high views, as I have said before, from the Bible Project. These brothers are helpful in looking at high-level views of the Old Testament. And so we are in the fourth movement of the book of Genesis. In the scroll of Genesis, there's four major sections. Adam to the Tower of Babel, Abraham to when he dies, Isaac and Jacob, and now the fourth one is Jacob's son, specifically honing in on Joseph. And I want to read Genesis 37 because these movements are signified by common phrases. And verse 2 is one of those common phrases. These are the generations of Jacob. This is used, minus the Jacob part, these are the generations. It's used 10 times throughout and it's meant to show significant shifts in the text. And now we are entering into the last movement. These are the generations of Jacob. And now he jumps right in. Joseph, being 17 years old. Teenagers, you are loved, but your brains are not fully developed yet. Okay? Now, just because mine is, that doesn't mean that I'm very smart. It just means... The point of his age being mentioned here is that some development is needed. Now, he says, Joseph was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Very interesting. Every time that we run into a shepherd so far in the scriptures, something sour has happened. Something has gone sideways. Now, we know that the Lord is shown to be the shepherd of God's people. But where we see shepherding happening at the beginning is Cain and Abel out in the field while shepherding and Cain kills Abel. Something sour happens. And then we see Abraham. When Abraham and Lot were out in a field, their, their herdsmen began to have tension, and so they had to divide and go in different ways because tension came as they were out in the field. Then we saw that with Isaac, his herdsmen were out there in the field, and that is when quarreling happened. Jacob also was shepherding, and that's when he was betrayed by his father-in-law Laban. And yet we also hear for Jacob that while he was shepherding, God became his shepherd. And God cared for him and provided for him and blessed him. And so what we are about to enter into, this is not just throwaway language. Joseph is out shepherding. It's going to tell us something is going to take a left turn. It's going to be sideways. But don't forget, God is our shepherd. He is a shepherd in the midst of the struggle. So he was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. If you remember, Jacob went against God's ways, had four wives that he ended up having 12 sons, specifically with the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Joseph, it says in chapter 37, verse 2, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Common phrase today is, Snitches get stitches. Have you ever heard that? Okay, I don't like it. I don't commend it. I think it's bullying and wrong, okay? But it's a common phrase. Snitches get stitches. That's what happens right here. 
Joseph goes and tells on his brothers that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. I have no idea what he told them. You know, hey, they're lazy. I did all the work. I don't know what in the world. But this is what's happening. Now we're also told something else. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, now this is interesting. Who's Israel? Where'd this guy come from? Israel is Jacob. God gave Jacob another name. When Jacob was wrestling God himself, God gave Jacob another name. The name was Israel. You know what Israel means? It means struggles with God. Jacob's name is a picture of the people of God. Rather than resting in God, that'd be a good name, resting in God. At peace with God. Following God wherever God wants me to go. That would be a great name. But the people of Israel, they struggle. They struggle against God. They do what is wise in their own eyes. Jacob was this quintessential picture of struggling against God's ways. So, we get one more little tilt towards something isn't right. Jacob is preferring one son over another. He loved Joseph more than any other son, it said in verse 3, because he was the son of his old age. This, ver this phrase is the same thing that was said about Abraham towards Isaac, the son of his old age. So we're getting a lot of parallels, a lot of hyperlinks back, a lot of connections. And here's what Israel, or Jacob, did for the son that he loved the most. He gave him a robe. How would you feel about that? You got some brothers and sisters, maybe, in your family. One of them pinned out and said, hey, I'm setting you up. You got the best shoes, the best clothes, because I love you most. How would that make you feel? Jealous? Rejected? Not loved as much? All that's true right here. So, look at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they, what's the next word? Hated him. They hated him. This is not how it's supposed to be. The preferential treatment, the hatred, the jealousy. This is these people doing what is wise in their own eyes. They're not following the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of the serpent the kingdom of the world. And so it says they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph has a dream. It's going to get worse. Joseph has a dream. First dream, bundles of wheat. And it says that all these bundles of wheat rose up and bowed down to Joseph's bundle of wheat. Okay, and then the text says, and they hated him even more. Okay, then he has another dream. This is where I think maybe his brain is not fully developed yet. Like, okay, you had a dream, keep it to yourself, bro. Like, you're just not smart. And you just like outlouded this sense of like, hey, you guys are going to bow down to me. So then he has another dream, sun, moon, and stars, or the sun and the moon, and 11 stars. Okay. He's got 11 brothers. Son, moon, father, mother. Now, interesting, his mother, Rachel, has already died. Benjamin is probably about one year old. We don't fully know. It's hard to do the math to figure out exactly how old Benjamin is. But probably Leah is his mother at this point, his mother figure. So son, moon, father, mother, going to bow down. And 11 stars, his 11 brothers, are going to bow down to him. This is not good. Here's what it said. Genesis 37, verses 10 and 11. But when he told this dream to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down before the ground to you? And his brothers were, here's the word, jealous of him, but his father he kept it in his mind. This is a foreshadowing. You've ever watched a movie honed in on the candlestick that eventually would be used to whop somebody over the head. You know, like 
This is a honing in. He kept it in his mind. And it's going to come back. Jealousy. They were jealous. James tells us how poisonous jealousy is. The book of James, James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Don't flirt with jealousy. Gavin Ortland tells us jealousy is being happy when bad things happen to someone and being sad when good things happen to someone. It's disgusting. But we have all felt it. We've all felt it. It has grossly crept into our hearts at at different times. We need to see that the wanting of harm towards others or the disappointment we have when others receive good is joining the devil's agenda. He is the one that wants pain for people. And jealousy is paralyzing, disgusting, and destructive for our hearts and for others. Gavin Ortland gives an alternative. Rather than wanting bad for someone, how about when good happens to them, we enjoy it like we do a sunrise. We enjoy that God is doing great to someone else like we do a mountain view or standing on the ocean standing at the coast and looking out at the ocean. We can just enjoy it, that God is at work and blessing other people. You don't have to put yourself in the center of everything like I am so tempted to do and say, well, what about me? The brothers were jealous when they saw what was going on in Joseph's life and rather than celebrating, they were upset. Now, I'm going to fast forward and give you just the highlights of the story, but one day, His brothers were shepherding in a field, and Jacob sent Joseph to check on his brothers. When Joseph was a long way off, his brothers conspired against him and were like, let's kill him. Now, Reuben, the oldest brother, the oldest son, said, hey, wait, let's don't do that. Let's throw him in a pit because Reuben wanted to come back and rescue his life. And so when he came, they took him, they threw him in a pit. And then Judah steps up. Mark this, Judah. Judah steps up, and here comes some Ishmaelite traders. Who's Ishmaelites? Ishmaelites were the ones who were exiled away from Abraham. The Ishmaelites were the one, he was the one that was treated as if his life did not matter as if human life was indifferent, and he and his mom, Hagar, were sent away from Abraham. Now these Ishmaelite traders, your antennas are supposed to go up. Uh Uh-oh, something bad might be happening here. The Ishmaelite traders come, and Judah has an idea. Why leave this guy in the pit when we can literally sell him and make cash for him? So that's what they do. They sell him to these Ishmaelite traders who are on their way to Egypt and they will again sell him, Joseph that is, to Potiphar, who is a captain of Pharaoh's guard in Egypt. This is nothing short of human trafficking. Taking a life and saying it, isn't, it doesn't matter, it's a possession, rather than made in the image of God, and he is taken and sold because of greed and jealousy. You are meant to look at this story and your stomach is meant to hurt. You are meant to see that just by these walking in wisdom of your own eyes, walking in the way of the devil rather than God's ways, all the devastating effects of sin, not just in this story, but for generations. And to make matters worse, That's Genesis 37 and Genesis 38. The whole chapter is about Judah and how bad of a guy he is. He ends up sleeping around and not taking care of his family. The whole point of that chapter is to show you how wretched and rotten Judah is. And then the camera zips off of Judah and hones in on Potiphar, 
the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, who now has enslaved, bought for some money, Joseph, and Joseph is in his house. And here's what we read, Genesis 39, 1 and 2. Now Joseph had been brought down, mark that in your mind. I've had you mark a lot of things. I've had you mark Judah. I've had you mark these dreams of everybody's going to bow down. And now I'm having you mark brought down. Okay? It's going to make sense. Just keep marking it, whatever that looks like in your brain. (laughs) It says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had, here's the phrase, brought him down there. And now, some of the most precious words in the story. They move us from just a storyline into the presence of God because you read these words. The Lord was with Joseph. He wasn't alone. He wasn't alone. And the Lord was with them and blessed his hand. God was not absent. If you're reading this story, you would be tempted to say God was not there. And when you look at your own story, a story of trial, a story of suffering, a story of rejection, a story of betrayal, a story of not being accepted, you are tempted to say God is not there. He's absent. And here in these few words, we hear, although sold into slavery through human trafficking, our God was not absent. When everything is bleak, when he felt alone, he was not alone. He could have been asking why. Why is this happening? We find out in a bunch of comments throughout the rest of this these chapters that Joseph was deeply hurt and grieved by all of this. Deep distress. I do believe he cried so much at the end when his brothers were there because of how deep the pain was in this very moment right here. It was just so fragile that he could cry at the drop of a hat. Because when you go through such intense suffering, you feel that hurt. That hurt sometimes is right here and you can't see anywhere. And I want you to know the Lord was with him. The Lord is with you. The Lord wants us to know above all that he is with us. He is caring for us. He will comfort you in your pain. And he is weaving together a story with your life that will lead you to the ultimate, fullest joy. And it will be a path. A path that will lead to the greatest sense of spreading God's name through your life. Your life is not throwaway. He is not absent. He is always at work. The call is to trust him. But what we see is although the Lord was with him and the Lord blessed Joseph's hand, Potiphar's wife had a different agenda. Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph because it says Joseph was a handsome man. She came and had some forward advances towards Joseph. Joseph kept rejecting, kept rejecting, kept rejecting. She kept coming after him. And finally, he said no, and he runs out. And she was trying to grab him, grabs his robe. He's without a robe. He's running away. So then she's angry that he would not follow her advances. So she goes to her husband and says, you know what Joseph was doing? He was coming after me. This man's been betrayed, rejected, wrongfully imprisoned, sold through human trafficking, and now falsely accused. Falsely accused. And Potiphar, because he only knows one side of the story, note to self, bad idea, knows one side of the story. He imprisons and throws him into prison, Joseph into prison, because of what's been said. Now, while in prison, the story continues, and Pharaoh has two guards in his uh, entourage. He's got uh, two captains, I should say. He's called a cupbearer and a baker. Literally what it is, it's the captain of drinking and the captain of eating. How would you like that title? It's the captain of drinking and the captain of eating. These are the two guys. They get in trouble, get thrown into prison, and they both have dreams. 
They both have dreams where somebody's head is raised up in the dream. And what happens? The cupbearer, his head was raised up, and he was spared. It's the captain of drinking. He was spared. So then the captain of eating was like, sweet, I want the same kind of interpretation. What's my interpretation? His head is raised up, and it says, by your raised up head, you will be hung. You're going to die. And it's exactly what happened. One died. The other was spared. And, jo and Joseph says this, don't forget me. Don't forget me when you are restored back into Pharaoh's good graces. Remember me that I interpreted this dream so I can get out of here. And here's what you read in Genesis 40, verse 23. The cupbearer did not remember Joseph and forgot him. Friends, hatred led to deceit, led to sorrow for Jacob, because when his brothers came back to Jacob, they made up a story that Joseph had been killed and they took the blood of a goat and wiped it all over the robe and took it to Jacob and Jacob was inconsolable in grief because of the loss of his son. Hatred led to deceit, led to sorrow for Jacob, fear for Reuben. And not immediately, but what you see is these ten brothers were filled with guilt and shame for 22 years after this. They couldn't shake it. The living of the lie ate them from the inside out. Not to mention the greatest pain. The greatest pain was to Joseph. He was told he wasn't loved. Not worth much. Sold for literally 20 shekels of silver. Sold for silver. Sound familiar? He experienced sorrow and betrayal and depression and loss of reputation and loss of possessions, false accu accusation, tries to do a good thing only to be forgotten. Dear friends, the point of this story is that we must fear sinning. Because these are the devastating effects of sin in our lives. We see all the deception and the greed and the jealousy and the selfish ambition from the brothers. And we see it as a picture, not just in this moment, but for generations before this, of people doing what is wise in their own eyes. We are meant to fear sinning. We see the continuing devastating effects of sin. Stories like this are windows into our own impatience. The questioning of God's goodness. Taking our struggles and rather than taking them to God, trying to solve them ourselves. Instead of walking in God's presence, we walk in our own ways. God is writing a story that is hoping that we would hate sin and trust in Him. Dear friends, look at the devastating effects of sin. Do, do not linger in it any longer in your own life. Don't look at it. Don't linger with it. Don't excuse it away. Don't give in to it. Don't call it small. Don't leave room for it. Don't persist in it. Fear it. And when you do, when you turn from it, run into the presence of a God who loves you and who has given His only Son so that sinners like you and I can find new life through the confession of sin and the confession of our faith that Jesus Christ alone can make us new. He specializes in taking those who have lived a horrible, alone, shame-filled, guilt-ridden life and to say, I can make you clean. Trust in me.
point of this story is out of the ashes of this horrible sin, what I'm calling out of the ashes of exile comes new life. So if the first point is for us to see the continuing devastating effects of sin and our response is supposed to fear, the second is new life from the ashes of exile. And the response should be hope. There should be hope. Because, remember I told you to mark the word down? Brought them down? Joseph was thrown down into a pit. He was taken down to Egypt. He was thrown into a prison, which he also calls a pit. And what happens in a pit? You're thrown down. All of these phrases are meant to show you a pattern throughout the Old Testament of exile. When you sin against God or when you are sinned against, there is this sense of removal or this sense of distancing that happens. And so Joseph is shown being taken down, down, down in exile for the sins of other people. And it is meant to point us, spoiler alert, it is meant to point us to Jesus who although he knew no sin, he went down, 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 bearing all of our sin on his shoulders, hanging on a tree, bearing the curse with which our sins incurred so that we would know we can still be loved and forgiven because he went through exile so that we would not have to. This is the point. Joseph is this pattern picture of what you see all throughout the scriptures that Jesus is the coming Messiah who had to suffer in order that life might come. New life through the ashes of exile. And so after 13 years of suffering, say that with me, 13 years of suffering. This is not a summer. But after 13 years, Joseph is now 30. You hear these words. Because what happened is, Pharaoh had a dream. Finally, after sitting there for two years after the cupbearer had been delivered, Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. The cupbearer, bing, Joseph, hey, dude in prison, he knows dream telling. So go to him. So here's what you read, Genesis 41. And Pharaoh said, this is verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? Because Joseph just interpreted the dream. Here's the dream. You're going to have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph told Pharaoh that this was the interpretation of the dream. And here's what Pharaoh says about Joseph. Can we find a man like this? in whom the Spirit of God is. Do you know the last time this phrase was used? Spirit of God? The Ruach, Spirit of Elohim. Do you know when that last time was used? In Genesis 1, in creation. He's ultimately saying, it's a pointer, it's a link back to, if our God can bring order out of chaos is the creator of the universe and that God dwells inside of people? It's that guy that I want to attach my train to is what Pharaoh's saying. He sees this God of the universe at work even though he's believing in something totally different. He sees that something is different about the spirit of Joseph. And we're meant to say as readers, look at what happens when the spirit of God indwells God's people. And so Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house and my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring, a ring that has an image on it, on his hand. And he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in new clothes of fine linen. And he put a gold chain around his neck. 
and he made him ride in his second chariot so that when he was driving by, they would be like, is that Pharaoh? Who is it? He looks like Pharaoh. He's kind of looking like Pharaoh, but he's not Pharaoh. He's, he's, he's Joseph. He's in the image of Pharaoh. He's kind of like him, but he's a partner with Pharaoh. And what we are meant to see is this is who we are in Christ. We are image bearers. Image bearers of our God, partnering with God to represent him. Joseph is showing what representation looks like. And specifically, just I can't spend time here, but specifically, as one group that I was uh, listening to and focusing in on, they said basically, Joseph was an image bearer by being over the division of famine relief. He was leading some governmental agency. And that was the arena in which he was an image bearer. Do not say your job doesn't matter. Your job is not only important if you are a missionary or a pastor. You're an image bearer. And you have been placed where you are with the skills that you've been given so that you can bring order out of chaos, kindness into mess, forgiveness where people want revenge, so that you can be an image bearer of our God. Joseph was that image bearer over a governmental agency. The Division of Famine Relief, right? I don't know what it's titled. But what we have is this picture of Joseph going from the ashes of exile raised to a new life completely. And I just want you to hear, although Joseph was forgotten, he was not forgotten by God. The scriptures say that God's children are engraved in the palms of his hands. God was faithful. Faithful through the hurt. God was with Joseph. And here's what we have. We have a God who says, out of the smoldering ashes of exile, I'm the one that is writing a story of hope. I'm writing a story of hope. Do you feel personally like you are stuck? Stuck in suffering? Stuck in sin? Stuck in trial. Look at Joseph's story to hear these words. God is still at work even though you can't see him. Trust him. Watch him bring life out of death. Watch him bring peace out of fear. Watch him bring joy out of sorrow. Dear friends, I am not saying that your life will turn into this richness of earthly abundance. Out of all of your poverty. That is not what this story is meant to tell you. What it is meant to tell you is in the ashes of the difficulties of your life, suffering and pain do not get the final word. It is meant to tell you that our God is always, always, always at work. And out of the ashes of exile, there is hope because our God brings new life. So when you are tempted to say, it's too big, I'm too afraid, I can't get out, hear these words. Watch him bring peace out of your fear. Watch him bring joy out of your sorrow. There is nothing too bad or horrific or dead that he cannot resurrect. There is nothing too persistent that he can't stop. There's nothing too great that he can't put down. There's nothing too strong against you that he can't set you free from. No grip too tight for him to loosen. No hardness of heart too hard that he can't soften. No strife too great that he can't bring peace. Our God specializes in bringing life out of the ashes of exile. There's hope. That is the point of this story. Our God is always, always, always on the scene. So this theme of exile is meant to show us the continually devastating effects of sin. And we should be afraid to sin. Hate it. But it is also meant to show us the powerful, loving, forgiving, resurrecting, life-transforming, faithful-to-His-promises work of God. 
Can I tell you a fun little story? Joseph had two sons in this season. You know what he named them? Manasseh and Ephraim. Do you know what their names mean? Manasseh's name means this. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Now let's be clear. You don't name somebody. God has made me forget my hardships and my trial because you've actually forgotten. Right? Every time you see your son, you think, I had a trial. You're just thinking that. Like, he didn't forget, forget. So what's he saying? He named his son that my suffering is no longer my storyline. It's no longer the punctuation point in my life. It's just a part of the story. My God has made me forget. He has brought me to a different place where I'm more aware of his presence and grace than I am characterized by all my trial. And Ephraim's name, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Just know, in our affliction, in our lowest spots, I promise you, that's where your relationship with God will grow the most. And you will be able to look back and say, out of affliction, God was bearing up fruit in my life. Our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. And so, in this last one, and I wish I had so much more time, what we see is forgiveness through our suffering servant substitute. Joseph ruled for seven years. Seven years of plenty, and then the famine came. Two years into famine, Jacob is like, we're dying here. We don't have enough food. And he sends his ten sons there. And as he sends his ten sons to Joseph, you have this amazing picture in Genesis 42 where the sons bow down to Joseph. Remember, Jacob kept it in his mind. The dream came true. They were bowing down to to Joseph, but they didn't know it was Joseph. So Joseph ends up testing them. Three tests that you see. Test number one. There was only 10 brothers that came. Joseph knew he had 11 brothers. And so Joseph said, I'm going to keep one brother here, and I'm going to fill up all your saddlebags with all the money and food you need but I need you to go back and bring your youngest brother here so that I will help you. And it's only then that I know you're honest and I will continue to provide for you. Do you see what he's doing? Will they take the cash and run and abandon the brother again? Or will they come back? They went. They got to Jacob. Jacob said, no way, no how am I giving my youngest son. And here's what's interesting. He was not going to give his youngest son. And the parallel is to Abraham giving his youngest son. What happened when Abraham was giving his only son, Isaac? God provided a ram in the thicket. You remember that? Well, now, what's going to happen? Finally, they bring Benjamin back. So they didn't abandon Simeon in prison. They bring Benjamin back. But here's something else that happens. They're all sitting around. Joseph throws them a feast. They're terrified, thinking he's going to kill them. Do you know what they do to Benjamin? They give him five times more food than everybody else. What's he doing? He's trying to, like, incite their jealousy. Will they be jealous again, or will they be okay? He's testing them over and over and over. And then he sends them back, but he hides a cup, a silver cup, in Benjamin's saddlebags. 
And then as they are leaving, they go and they say, hey, whoever has this, we're going to capture them. It was Benjamin. So now they're taking Benjamin. And here's what happens. Benjamin's life is threatened just like Isaac's life was threatened. God provided a ram in the thicket so that Isaac didn't have to be killed. What's going to happen with Benjamin? Guess who steps up? Judah. Judah. The one who initiated the betrayal. The one who had forgotten his family. Judah steps up and says, let it be done to me what you want done to Benjamin. And Joseph broke. He broke. Because he saw that Judah was willing to stand as a substitute in the place of his brother Benjamin. What's the parallel? We have a Savior. We have a Savior who stood in the place, having not deserved it like Judah deserved it, who stood in the place of our sin. He took our sin upon His shoulders. He died in our stead so that we could have new life. Do you know what tribe Jesus comes from? He comes from the line of Judah. The one David the king came through. And that's why when you end this story in Genesis 49, instead of Judah, there will be a king that comes from the line of Judah. And obedience from all the nations will bow down to that king. It's because Jesus is the king. And he can be trusted. And his word is sure. And the comment to you today is, will you receive his forgiveness, his mercy and his love? Will you trust him? hate sin, not walk in the ways of sin? Will you fear sin? Will you have hope that he can do amazing things far beyond what you could ever ask or imagine? And will you trust in him alone to bring forgiveness, to set you free? Because here's the words of your story and of Joseph's story. It says, God sent me before you to preserve life. It was not you ultimately, brothers, who sent me, but God did. Dear friends, God is over your story. You can trust Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would now be near to us as we take the Lord's Supper and we have a time of reflection. And I pray, oh God, that we would fear sin, have hope in the midst of our pain, and that, Father, you would set many free in this room. Free from despair. Free from cynicism. Free from unbelief. Free from jealousy and bitterness. Father, set free. We ask this so that you would be glorified. Right now, dear church, and guests who are with us, I pray that right now you would quiet your heart and ask for the Lord to do a work in your soul. Right now, confess your sin, confess your faith. Just ask Him to take all of you. 